The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Michael, how did it go? Is the committee going to help us? The committee's a bunch of ineffectual dorks in fleece vests. The Titanic is sinking and they're writing a strongly worded letter to the iceberg. How much more evidence do they need? The bad place has to be tampering with the system. There's no other explanation. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January 31st, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, here in my political neighborhood, everybody's been ganging up on Ontario Premier Doug Ford for suggesting that Ontario could be looking at a recession in the face of carbon taxation and so-called green climate agendas. Is there a recession coming? And if so, what can we do about it? Listening to economists analyze our economy and then try to make future predictions based on their analyses is getting so bad I'm really feeling left out of the popular conversation entirely because it's not a conversation that ever leads towards any identifiable resolutions or understanding of anything, at least to my way of thinking. It kind of makes me angry a bit, actually, because all of the economic analyses hides more than it reveals. So I'll be sharing a few of those analyses that I've been hearing in our local media lately, which of course will be deconstructing in an attempt to shed some light on a subject that, quite frankly, I think is incapable of having any light shone upon it, or even capable of being understood in the kind of context being discussed. Today's show is yet another demonstration of just how, not necessarily wrong, quote-unquote, but meaningless and valueless, so many economic opinions are on matters of carbon taxes and even recessions themselves. We'll begin that demonstration right after you are reminded that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. So as I mentioned earlier, everyone's been ganging up on Ontario Premier Doug Ford for suggesting that Ontario could be looking at a recession in the face of all this carbon taxation. Those ganging up on Ford include, well, the usual gang of leftist media commentators, which is to be expected. But also in the gang are several people who call themselves economists. To borrow a phrase we just heard from our good place opener, (laughs) economists are a bunch of ineffectual advisors and predictors. The Titanic is sinking and they're writing a strongly worded letter to the iceberg. (laughs) That's exactly how I feel when I hear most of these discussions. Pessimistic forecasts can't be going over well in Ottawa, reads the headline of the January 23rd Financial Post in an article written by Kevin Carmichael, who writes, and I quote, 
Last week, the Canadian wing of the news and data machine, started by U.S. billionaire Michael Bloomberg, introduced us to a new participant in the short Canada trade, a hedge fund called Crescent Capital that is betting against this country's banks. And on January 22nd, it published the provocative thoughts of Jim Milonis, a strategist at BCA Research Inc., the Montreal-based research outfit that once employed Stephen Polaz, the Bank of Canada governor. I think we're just on the precipice of embarking on a serious recession, Malonis told Bloomberg. It's not a matter of if, but when. But there is little evidence in Ottawa that the men and women in charge are willing to acknowledge the economy could be headed for a rough patch. However, a downturn is by no means the mainstream view. The International Monetary Fund and the Bank of Canada see growth and expansion of 1.9% and 1.7% respectively, both decent if slower than the past couple of years. For the most part, recession forecasts have come from unreliable sources such as Doug Ford. (laughs) The Ontario Premier said on Monday that the risk that the carbon tax could cause an economic downturn is, quote, very real. That's nonsense, as the few billions of dollars that the government might collect from the tax, all of which will be returned to taxpayers, equates to a sliver of Canada's $2.2 trillion gross domestic product. The article concludes by suggesting that the biggest threat of recession in Canada would come from higher interest rates being set by the Bank of Canada, and again quotes Malona saying, We're now at a point where the Bank of Canada is going to be flirting with triggering the next recession, if it hasn't already. For sure, all that debt has left Canada vulnerable. Just how vulnerable depends on your outlook for interest rates. End quote. Now keep that article in mind as we move on to our upcoming exhibit. In all the talk about the economy and the body politic, There is a sense of perspective and reality constantly missing from the discussion. And I'm not really talking about like some disconnect between, you know, theory and practice. I have my own ideas about what causes quote-unquote so-called recessions. But let's save that epiphany for later, after we've had a chance to listen in to more of what the popular view on this subject is. This is actually the conversation that got me wound up about this subject from last Friday's broadcast of Tom McConnell's show on CKTB AM 610 Radio in St. Catharines. His conversation with economist Mike Moffat concerning Ontario Premier Doug Ford, carbon taxes, and the probability of a coming recession, it actually left me vaguely pissed off after I heard it, but I couldn't identify why. But after re-listening to it, and then jotting down some of the basic points on paper, well, I knew why. The Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at Smart Prosperity. Hello, Mike Moffat. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. Also an Associate Professor at the Ivy School of Business at Western University. Are you one of these elite economists who live in an ivory tower and don't think there are real-world consequences like recessionary pressures by added taxes? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit uh, frustrating. I, you can be against uh, carbon price. You can come up, up with all kinds of reasoning about you know why you don't you don't think this is a good idea but the idea that this is somehow going to cause a recession just doesn't make any sense okay hold on if we increase the costs across the board on nearly everything how, how can this not be added pressure on a recession well, two reasons. That one, the money is getting flowing back to people, right? So although, yes, costs might be going up a little bit, uh, so is the amount of money that you're getting. But secondly, and I think most importantly, it's just magnitude, you know, the size of, of, of this change. Do we have a recession every time the price of gas goes up a tenth of a cent? I don't believe so. Yeah, you know, every, long, every long weekend should cause a recession, you know, if, if that is truly the case. So there's four reasons why. You know, this doesn't make any sense. The first is economic modeling. Uh, there was a study that came out last year, 11 different economic models studying carbon, ta- uh, carbon pricing or carbon taxes that look like this, all of which showed it had a small economic effect. Most of them did, in fact, have a small negative economic effect. A few of them had positive, depending on, you know, what you assume people do with the money. So we have dozens of models, none of which show you would get a recession. But you might think, okay, well, you know, maybe the economist models are all wrong. Maybe all of these models are wrong. Well, the second thing we can look at is we have experience in other jurisdictions. We've had carbon pricing in dozens of other jurisdictions. We cannot find one real-world example of this causing a recession. Look at British Columbia. They've had a carbon price for uh, over a decade now. Their economy has grown twice as fast as the national average. They didn't have a recession. You know, Finland hasn't had a recession. Norway hasn't had a recession. All of these countries, uh, you know, we can't find a single case of a carbon tax causing a recession. The third is just common sense. Again, as I mentioned to you, we're talking about a $20 a ton carbon tax. And again, that money would flow back to businesses and companies. The Ontario economy grows by about $15 billion a year. So how are you going to get a $2 billion program to wipe out $15 billion of economic activity? Again, when that money is getting rebated back to people, you know, we're talking about four to five cents at the gas pump. We don't have a recession every time the price of gas goes up four or five cents. The fourth way we know is that the uh, Ontario Ministry of Finance has come out with their economic projections for 2019, and guess what? They show that the economy is going to grow. So we have all kinds of evidence. And again, none of this is to suggest that the carbon pricing is necessarily the best policy or that you have to like it, but just that this particular claim that the carbon price is going to risk a recession simply doesn't make any sense. What does lead to a recession? We know the measurement is a contraction of GDP over two consecutive quarters. Is the is that not the official? That is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, what leads to a contraction? What what are what are some of the primary reasons why we would see a recession? Yeah, and and, and that's a really good point. We might have a recession, you know, in the next six, twelve, eighteen months. It very well could happen. So nobody suggests that we might not have a recession. It's just we're not going to have one that's caused by carbon tax. If the Bank of Canada raises interest rates too high, that could cause a lot of pressure on indebted households. So there is actually a real risk that we have a made-in-Canada recession uh, due to interest rates. We could also have a recession just because of world events, you know, between the U.S. and China, Brexit goes south. So there is a real risk here. 
That again was CKTB's Tom McConnell in conversation with Mike Moffat. Uh, just amazing. You know, in the same conversation he has with Tom, where he says predicted economic growth for Canada is healthy, he also concludes that we could actually have a recession in 6 or 12 or 18 months. But apparently Ford's an idiot for suggesting it. <laughs> you know, I really don't know or care what Ford actually did originally say. Financial Post referred to Ford suggesting that the carbon tax could cause, quote, an economic downturn, whereas Moffat was using the word recession. But anyways, that distinction has very little to do with my own thoughts on this subject. But Tom asked an interesting question. If you increase the cost of everything artificially, how can this not be added pressure on a recession? But Mr. Moffat says he has two reasons. Number one, the money is, quote, flowing back to people. And so costs might be going up a bit, but so is the amount of money you're getting, end quote. Well, quite frankly, (laughs) that argument makes no sense at all. If you're going to quote, flow the money back to the people, then what's the purpose of taking it from them in the first place? What, you take $10 from me, then give me $10 back? Or do I get $11 and somebody else gets $9? That's the only way the arithmetic works out for me. So I think this is a BS argument simply concocted to hide the fact that the government is simply transferring the earned wealth of some to the unearned benefit of others. And this is immoral for two. I got two reasons, too. Two reasons why this is immoral. One, stealing itself is wrong, even if it's being done for the benefit of others. And two, lying is wrong. If you have to concoct this wild climate change story to justify your simple economic theft. And what the hell does he mean when he says, so costs might be going up a bit, but so is the amount of money you're getting? Well, I think he's speaking of an imaginary collective. (laughs) The person whose costs are going up is not the same person whose amount of money is going up. This is a complete con, and not the kind of con that was intended to be applied to the word economist. Unless economists are now just conomists, (laughs) you know what I mean? And then Moffat's second reason was irrelevant to the point, however factual. And he said his second reason was magnitude. The size of this change is relatively small compared to the size of the economy. Well, this would be true if, and only if, no other costs were being similarly increased. Like, say, oh, income tax, property tax, sales taxes, user fees, inflation, and a whole host of other relatively small changes that, if originating in government, always increase with regularity. You'd have to take an entirely isolationist view of what is a cause to arrive at this kind of conclusion. Sure, if you take any single cause out of the big picture, because a recession is caused by a lot of things, then you can always argue that that one thing was not the singular cause. Do we have a recession every time the price of gas goes up a tenth of a cent? If so, then every long weekend should cause a recession, suggests Moffat. <laughs> I started laughing out loud at that point. This is completely ridiculous. If every long weekend the price of gas kept rising, you can damn well bet we, yes, we indeed would have a recession. <laughs> But the price of gas doesn't go only in one direction. It also falls. 
as anyone going to the pumps lately might have noticed. And those kind of price fluctuations are the kind that prevent recessions from happening. The current drop in gas prices is caused, quote-unquote, by a glut on the market. And of course we can go infinitely back as to what causes the glut on the market. But in part, that has been caused, quote-unquote, by Donald Trump. And we'll get into that a little later on. But in the free part of the market, the price of gas rises and falls according to the law of supply and demand. And both the supply and demand are real. They're not artificial or make-believe prices like a tax on carbon, which creates an entire quote-unquote market of a quote-unquote supply and demand of fiat permissions from the government to be able to produce something that creates carbon dioxide in the process. Again, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, nor should any rational person ever even want to decrease carbon dioxide on a planet of life. But that's a whole other show, and we've done it too many times to count. But can the same be said for taxation? When was the last time you noticed your taxes fluctuating up and down? Like, never? Taxes always rise and never fall in the grand economic picture. And that's because government spending always escalates. It is not subject to market forces, other than attempting to get blood from stone. That's really what it all boils down to. That's our tax system. So beyond his two reasons why increasing the cost of everything through carbon taxes is not something that would cause a recession, Moffat had four more reasons. Number one, economic modeling can determine the economic impact of a change. Last year, 11 different economic models studying carbon pricing or carbon taxing all showed a small economic effect mostly negative, a few had positive effects depending upon what you assume people did with the money. <laughs> oh no, D depending upon what you assume people did with the money? What money? Whose money? You know, they never make that clear. But what's clear here is that the few positive effects were based upon an economic assumption, not based on any experience. You can be against carbon pricing for various reasons, argues Moffat, but the idea that carbon pricing will cause a recession doesn't make sense. We have dozens of models, none of which show you would get a recession. Maybe all of these models are wrong, he suggests. <laughs> well, maybe they all are. This is simply completely irrelevant to any case on recessions, or more importantly, to the fundamental factors and conditions that constitute a cause in any given event, what causes something is truly a philosophical question, not an economic one. We've talked about that before on the show, and it's an, it's an amazing topic area. Number two, according to Moffat, experience in other jurisdictions. We've had carbon taxing in other jurisdictions where no recession has been caused. British Columbia had a carbon price for over a decade. Their economy has grown twice as fast as the national average. Is Tom then suggesting that carbon taxes improve the economy? Is that, can he make that argument? But he argues can't find a single case of carbon taxes causing a recession. But first, <laughs> you know, you have to find a recession. Suppose we have a recession 6 or 18 months from now. Can you still argue that carbon taxes did not contribute to the recession and had nothing to do with it? I bet you they would. They would go for whatever the last event they saw before they got that measurement of a recession and blame that thing on it. 
Or maybe they go by size. Who knows? Here's his number three point. Common sense. Oh, Lord. <laughs> a $20 per ton carbon tax, $2 billion of carbon would be subject to this, and that would flow back to Ontario businesses and companies. Expense against an Ontario economic growth of $15 billion a year. Okay, <laughs> there's that same argument again. All this money's coming back to us. Then why are they taking it from us in the first place? How, he asks, is a $2 billion program going to wipe out a $15 billion a year growth, especially when most of it is rebated back to people? Again, we're talking about four to five cents at the gas pump, he says. We don't have a recession every time the price of gas goes up four or five cents. Yeah, well, there's that stupid wealth transfer argument again. Uh, offered as an additional reason when we already heard this reason is number one and I think is some other number too, but we keep getting the same reason numbered different numbers. And exactly how does my paying an extra four to five cents at the gas pump get rebated back to me? Or even just to, quote, the people. <laughs> Number four, the Ontario Ministry of Finance has come out with their economic projections showing that the economy is going to grow. Well, now there's an unassailable source and endorsement. <laughs> Does anybody remember all the BS that came out of Kathleen Wynne's economic predictions in the Ontario Ministry of Finance under her government? How accurate were they? We couldn't even trust them to give us accurate existing facts of the present, let alone make predictions. <laughs> then Tom asked an interesting question. What does lead to a recession? And here we got a definition of what a recession is, and this is key to the whole conversation. Defined as, quote, a contraction of GDP, gross domestic product, over two consecutive quarter year periods. End quote. So what leads to a contraction, he asked. And then the total surprise. Moffat responds, well, we might have a recession in the next 6 to 12 to 18 months. It very well could happen. No one is suggesting that we might not have a recession, just not from carbon taxes. So why did we have this conversation? <laughs> what does he blame on a possible recession? Actions by the Bank of Canada can raise interest rates too high. This will cause a lot of indebted households to get into trouble. Two trillion dollars of household debt. Way larger than a carbon tax. And you can also have a recession due to world events. Well, so that means that Mike Moffat, like almost all economists, believes that interest rates are a cause, that indebted households are a cause, that world events are a cause. Now, from where I sit, I already know that interest rates themselves are caused by something else. That household debt is caused by something else. And that world events are caused by an infinite number of events themselves. Where do you put your finger to stop the first cause? Remember that conversation we had? None of this explains anything. It just makes the whole conversation meaningless. Moffat didn't even answer Tom's question. Okay, so interest rates, if they're too high, can cause a recession, but why would they raise the interest rates too high? Well, we don't get an answer to that. Should we keep interest rates low and just let it keep going? That's what we've been doing. A recession is, according to the parameters of this discussion, a contraction of GDP over two consecutive quarter-year periods. So what if we had a contraction in one period, none in the second, another contraction in the third, 
and you could theoretically have a contraction every other fiscal quarter and still never have a recession by their definition because it has to be two consecutive quarters. You see what I'm saying? Economy could be on a complete downturn, but we still don't have a recession until we meet that definition. <laughs> and you wonder where the statement comes from. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> you know, by itself, not even a 100% increase in interest rates should cause, quote-unquote, even a ripple in the economy. If no one's in debt, how would interest rates cause a recession? I mean, in the absence of debt, an interest rate increase could slow an expansion or capital investment, both positives, but be a cause of a negative? That's an entirely different equation. And here's a really, really unanswerable question. Is every recession really a bad thing? Remember, capitalism is a system of profit and loss. Taking losses are what cause downward adjustments. Shouldn't that logic also apply to what we call recessions? This one from the Globe and Mail, January 8th, with a commentary by Aaron Griffin, taken from the New York Times News Service. Headline reads, As it happens, not everyone is wary of a downturn. And she writes, quote, Vinny Letiri, a managing director of KKR who invests in tech companies, had a slow 2018. The venture capitalist who manages a $714 million U.S. fund tried to put some of that money into 12 tech startups this past year, but failed when they demanded too rich a price. So here's what Mr. Letiri is not so secretly hoping for in 2019. A downturn in the private startup market. Mr. Letary is one of a growing number of venture capitalists rooting for a market dip to calm the overheated startup scene. We definitely want to take advantage of a market downturn, said Sandy Miller, a venture capitalist at IVP, who projects that startup valuations will fall 10 to 40 percent this year. He said his Silicon Valley venture firm has set aside meaningful reserves to do more deals and to put more money into companies it has already invested in. Not all venture capitalists want a downturn, especially if it will throw a wrench into their plans of some of the biggest, such as Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, and Slack, to go public. Many investors are eager to cash out of those companies when they stage an initial public offering. End quote. So the bottom line is on this, that for some, the bottom line is improved by a downturn in the market. But that's a whole other discussion, far removed from what causes a recession. Now here's a question for you. What if interest rates have already done the damage necessary to cause a recession, as was suggested by another commentator earlier? But we can't measure a recession as yet. And what if the precipitating event of a measurable recession was in fact a carbon tax, or say an income tax, or any additional tax? If the tax was tiny relative to the singular effect of the interest rates, does that still put the tax out of the economist's consideration as being a cause of a recession? If I put a straw on a camel's back, will it break? Of course not, responds the economist. The size and weight of the straw relative to the camel is insignificant. Well, then I want to know, where did the well-known saying, the straw that broke the camel's back, possibly originate? Oh, I know, from Doug Ford. He did it. <laughs> wow. Ask a smoker 
who as a consequence contracted lung cancer exactly which, which cigarette it was that caused his cancer. And he might look at you a bit dumbfounded since it is widely recognized that smoking as a cause is a cumulative and persistent pattern of repeated smoking. It's not a single event phenomenon. And that too is how an economy can rise or collapse. It works both ways. Good habits breed healthy economies and bodies. Bad habits breed unhealthy bodies and economies. But you know we discuss economics one cigarette at a time. One straw at a time. And to that one straw or cigarette, we attach or detach our cause. <laughs> Here again, Tom McConnell. On this side of the bumper, in conversation with Laura Babcock, <laughs> on January 23rd about Ford and his recession talk, and on the other side of the bumper, Tom brings to light one of the very real economic causes that itself is also an effect. And that's where the rubber hits the economic road. The principal at Power Group Communications, media and PR expert, Laura Babcock, how are you? I'm great, thank you. All right. Uh, earlier this week, Premier Doug Ford addressed the Economic Club of Canada, and he said that the Prime Minister's carbon pricing plan, a carbon tax, will cause a recession. Since that time, um, no economist has backed him and said, I I actually, that's not true. We don't believe it would cause a recession. Um, what is Ford's play here then? Why is he, because, you know, he won a majority, he's in power in Ontario for the next four years, but he's clearly on the offensive and he's, you know, been on the offensive against Justin Trudeau since he was elected. I mean, the carbon tax has been at the top of his list since he became elected by, by using such language that economists don't agree with, but the average person may resonate with what's Ford's play by saying it's going to cause a recession. Well, he wants to be prime minister. I think he wants to be prime minister. I don't think that they've ever kind of hidden those ambitions. And here is a little bit feckless. And then you've got Ford playing the populist card, using the over-the-top rhetoric. It's not true. It isn't true by any any of the analysis economically that I've looked at from any of the people. And I'm not an economist, but they basically said any impact by carbon taxing would be like a tiny, tiny scintilla of an effect on Canada's overall GDP. It's minor, and the two provinces that have had carbon tax pricing have the strongest, most robust economies in the country, so it, it didn't affect the provincial economies. Um, but Trudeau has basically said, we're going to do this carbon tax because carbon emissions don't stop at provincial borders, right? Uh, it is our air. And you've got, so it's a federal issue, it's a federal mandate, and you've got Ford wanting to become the conservative federal voice on on this very good election type issue. And if you look at that cover of the McLean's magazine where you had the different provincial premiers saying, you know, are these Trudeau's worst enemies, Ford wants to be positioned, uh, I think, as a potential successor to Sear, and he wants to be the one who could take down Trudeau and his carbon tax. We are within an election federal year, and what Ford did, which I think is, is pretty ignominious, it's pretty shameful, really, it's embarrassing for Ontario. I've been to those kind of meetings, those, those kind of economist club meetings, right? You want serious people talking to that serious audience. You don't want someone up there. Well, he is the premier, though. Brand. Well, yeah, but here's the thing, though. He is, he is the premier, and of course you're going to go and see the premier. But I, I, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, you're standing in front of a group of serious business leaders, and you're saying that carbon pricing is going to be a disaster, and it's the carbon, carbon tax recession. It was a branding exercise, a populist branding exercise, to kind of label the impending recession, to blame it all at the foot of 
Trudeau, which so it's it's. But if you're going to talk at the at a club like that in front of those business leaders, at least have your facts right. So I just thought that I thought that Ford. Um, he he just undermined his his authority as a voice on the economy. You don't stand in front of those leaders and say something that is that is obviously not accurate. And and the economists who weighed in are all said actually no. And he didn't offer any evidence to back up that slogan. And he didn't take questions afterwards. So it was purely a branding exercise in a campaign. Is it possibly going to stick? Yeah, he's good at this stuff. He's really good at this stuff. Um, but I just don't think that it's terribly respectful of of the economists, of the business people in this province who are trying to understand good public policy. I, I thought that that was a mistake of his, and unfortunately, I don't like it when any public leader just you know throws out taglines and branding and stuff that has no basis to it. But doesn't it go back to rule number one in politics, acquire and maintain power, right? Sure. That if it's a branding exercise and it's about promotion of the Ford brand and aspirations for the next level, that that's all it's about, like facts. What facts? Yeah, well, strategically for him, it's a good play, right? It's catchy. We're all afraid of a recession. Trudeau didn't brand the recession differently. So now Ford's branded the recession. He's gotten ahead of it. He's really good at it. And I think he'd be a, a formidable foe to Trudeau because he's really good at this stuff. I've never, you know me, Tom, I may not agree with particular policies of a politician, but I'll give them credit for communication strategy. I've said so about Trump many, many times. You know, if you have someone who's able to put forward a really good, catchy line, if you're able to label something and, and define an opponent or an opposing policy ahead of the person who's putting it forward, you're going to win the PR war. And, and so I think he is winning this on the carbon tax by labeling it. Uh, I just don't think that, you know, it's particularly respectful of the business people who are there who want a premier who's going to, you know, make Ontario open for business to give them misleading information. Laura Babcock, always a pleasure. to this article about NNP and the Consumer Debt Index. Thirty-one percent of Canadians say they don't have enough room to cover their bills and debt obligations monthly. All right, so what are they doing? Just delaying paying some of the bills, I guess. Forty-six percent of Canadians are within two hundred dollars of insolvency. And this is interesting. According to MNP, licensed insolvency trustees, they say for most, the cause of trouble appears to be long-term accumulated debt. It may have been acquired over many years, and they managed to pay the monthly interest until now. They just can't carry it any longer at higher interest rates. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you and with the rest of the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your support, and while you're there, be sure to sample some of our archived broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. 
You know, Laura Babcock is always entertaining to me, mostly because she suffers chronically from Trump derangement syndrome, which seems to be catching given that she's now exhibiting symptoms of forward derangement syndrome. By the way, as I've always stressed, (laughs) these derangement syndromes are not about the particular politicians being unjustly criticized. It's all about being deranged against anything that's on the right, and that's really the driving force here. Now, Tom McConnell pointed out how no economist has backed Ford and why is Ford, you know, making a play like this. Babcock, of course, responds that he wants to be prime minister, and but she says his analysis is not true. Any impact of the carbon tax would be minor. Then she says, you want serious people, not Ford. He's standing in front of a group of serious business leaders. Now, I just had to laugh when I heard that. Is she kidding me? Serious? Business leaders? Have you ever met any of these business leaders? When it comes to politics and governments, they're complete blankouts. Most are lefties, particularly the ones closest to government connections. Business people are just regular folks like everyone else. What they know is that carbon taxes are an added artificial cost to their business and that they don't want to be struggling in a recession. All Ford has to do is connect those two issues by saying he's opposed to both. Economists be damned. Quote, Ford is playing the populist card, says Babcock, end quote. Well, duh. Ford is speaking as a politician, not as an economist. So the simple law of identity demands that anything he says be seen in that light. And if you're unable to even identify the nature of the participants, you've got no way of accurately interpreting or even honestly interpreting their message. However, Tom McConnell's startling report from MMP insolvency trustees says more about the state of Canada's economy than all of the economic analyses combined. 31% of Canadians say they don't have enough room to cover their bills and their debt obligations monthly. And 46% of Canadians are within $200 of insolvency. I mean, that's simply beyond alarming. (laughs) precipice anyone? (laughs) But get this, according to MMP, for most, the cause of the trouble appears to be long-term accumulated debt. That's what we heard Tom say. Well, hello, the cause of their trouble is long-term accumulated debt? But of course, long-term accumulated government debt couldn't possibly be a cause of a recession, could it? But no, that's not what the economists are talking about, not according to them. Tom points out how this debt may have been acquired over many years and they've managed to carry the interest until now and they just can't carry it any longer with higher interest rates. Well, there's those nasty interest rates again. The cause of it all, from the economist's point of view. An interest rate increase, like a carbon tax, is not a cause. It might, however, be a tipping point that's merely being labeled as a cause in order to offer an explanation that avoids all of the complexities of what are in reality a myriad of quote-unquote causes. So if the cause of the debt problems faced by so many Canadians is long-term accumulated debt, then what could have contributed to the serious debt of so many people at one time? I mean, that's, that's not natural particularly in a free economy, meaning, of course, free from government intervention. Well, maybe this will offer us a clue. From Post Media News, an editorial going back to August 25th, 
2017. The headline reads, Not right that taxes cost more than basics. <laughs> Quote, it's unacceptable, scandalous even, that the average Canadian family spends more of its income on taxes than on the basic necessities of life. It wasn't always this way, and it doesn't have to continue being like this. The people can say they've had enough. The politicians can summon some guts and courage to tackle this problem. This slow but steady increase of the tax burden on regular Canadians can and must be stopped. It's not like every other expense in our lives has gone up this much. Not only are taxes our biggest expense, they're also the one that's increased the most. As the Fraser Institute calculates, the tax amount before inflation, and get this, that's before inflation, which is another form of tax, by the way, has increased by a whopping 2,005% since 1961. So that's from 61 to 2017. And, of course, that's a far cry from the tiny insignificant increase that economists constantly cite. But, no, they're correct. It hasn't caused a recession, if that's the definition they want to hide behind. But the article continues. Shelter comes closest to matching it, but it's still significantly less, having increased by 1,527%. The price of clothing and food has gone up 577% and 639%, respectively. The one silver lining, if you can put it that way, is that we're not just being taxed more, but being taxed for more. We're getting more services out of government than we were decades ago. This isn't all necessarily good, though. Government continues to broaden its domain, often in unnecessary ways. Red tape, bureaucracy, middle management, these are some of the causes of growth. It's not like every single tax dollar is going to frontline services. Far from it. Canadians want quality public services they can rely on. This does not equal a free pass, though, for the fans of big government to operate with wild abandon. More on taxes than basic needs? It's just not right. End quote. No, it's not right. It's left. And it doesn't just stop with taxation. You know, what's really remarkable to me is that we have politicians who think their economic policies can possibly have an effect on the climate, yet these same politicians cannot even control the political climate that they themselves keep creating. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Again, economists and politicians don't want people to restrain their economic activity in anticipation of any bad times ahead. To their way of thinking, this only brings on the bad times earlier, or even causes them. Just keep smoking those cigarettes. Just don't smoke that last one. That's the one that will cause your cancer. Just keep piling those straws onto the camel's back. But beware of that last one. <laughs> well, I've reached my last straw. See why I find these kinds of conversations so frustrating and of little value? Yet this is the kind of thinking, the kind of perspective, that comprises the talking points of most economists. And with that, We've reached the tipping point of this entire discussion. Allow me to frame the rest of our conversation this way. Ask not what causes a recession, for the answers are infinite and varied. Ask instead what causes prosperity, for the answers are few and eternally true. And to directly address that question, we turn to the Epoch Times. 
in an article written by Valentin Schmidt back on March 15th of last year under the headline, The Illusion of Free Trade. Now, you might gather from a headline like that that the writer is opposed to free trade in some way. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I found his analysis to be very explanatory, not predictive, about both what President Donald Trump is doing on the world stage and why. And I think he's hit the nail on the head. Quote, the backlash from popular media and the affected country's politicians blames Trump for ruining the beautiful free trade system built up around the World Trade Organization and its predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs. As with anything Trump says or does, it's important to step back and look at the bigger context he's acting within. The first big picture newsflash is that neither the World Trade Organization, the WTO, nor the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, was free. Free trade is trade without government intervention. <laughs> yeah. Now note that he said without government intervention, not without government. That distinction, again, distinguishes the difference between a government that acts as a referee and one that's a player in the game being refereed. Okay? He continues, One country or industry may produce and export a lot of steel, but if it doesn't get any subsidies and doesn't have protective import tariffs, then it deserves to capture global market share because it's the most competitive. It uses the locally given resources of labor and capital in the most productive way. End quote. Now, this is profound, even if it didn't sound like it, because Schmidt has used the word deserves in the proper moral context, since an enterprise that operates on its own resources and merits has earned a right to be in the global market. You see the difference? If you're using force through government or even through criminal activity, you shouldn't be in the global marketplace. He continues, if, and this is a big if, there is no government interference in the marketplace for money itself. In other words, if there's a global sound money standard, then trade surpluses in one country would lead to money inflows and goods outflows, thus raising the price level and making exports naturally less competitive. In the deficit country, money would leave and goods would enter, lowering the price level and making its exports more competitive. Therefore, would, there would be no persistent deficits, as we have seen with the United States and the rest of the world. However, the WTO works according to a complex system of rules and penalties, opposite to being a system of government free of intervention. It provides a framework for how governments can micromanage the trade. The mismanagement of global fiat currencies and floating exchange rates further exasperates imbalances. And every type of government intervention in the marketplace, whether via taxation or tariffs and import quotas, creates winners and losers. These winners and losers are different from those in a competitive system where the best steel manufacturer who has the cleanest furnace, consuming the least electricity, makes the most sales. Winners by diktat of government intervention are often less competitive and therefore need the help of the state to survive. The Chinese steel industry as a whole only continues because of massive government subsidies in the form of cheap loans, direct transfers, and state-subsidized electricity. American steel companies didn't get the same help and therefore many had to fold. 
They were the losers in this exercise of quote-unquote free trade, as well as millions of American and Canadian manufacturing workers who couldn't compete with China's cheap labor, huge state subsidies, and resulting glut of steel globally. But there were also winners on the American side. Multinational corporations like General Motors and Caterpillar benefited from either exporting to China or from being allowed to set up shop in China and starting production. This is especially the case for tech companies like Apple, which, through proxies, produce most of their tech gadgets in China, where average tariffs are as high as 10% compared to the average 3.5% of the United States. Another winner of this lopsided free trade is the U.S. government, which could sell a lot of its debt to China through the aforementioned manipulated system of fiat currencies and fixed exchange rates. But the average U.S. and Canadian consumer also benefited from cheaper import prices for thousands of electronic gadgets and other goods. The list of winners and losers goes on and on, and it's different for every tariff, every regulation, and every manipulation of fiat currency. Coming back to Trump and his tariffs, it's only natural he would want to change the configuration of winners and losers in an already deeply manipulated system. Trump is an economic nationalist, and his goal is to benefit U.S. industry and domestic employment. Every policy, from immigration to regulation to taxation, reflects this philosophy. Now, I have to stop here for a moment and point out that that last observation cannot be understated. It not only identifies the philosophical base from which Trump operates, it also illustrates the necessity of operating from a philosophical base without which no human being on the face of the planet but could possibly keep track of all the infinitely varied economic nuances and trade and production processes in play. All of those ever-changing nuances and relationships are what the left refers to as facts, and each of those isolated facts, businesses, transactions, and interests is the entire philosophical field of the left in each given instance. You see the difference? It also explains issues like the wall controversy, the proposed wall between Mexico and the U.S. It's all just one piece of a bigger plan, and each piece is necessary to complete the whole. So he continues, quote, so by raising tariffs on selected products, he's pricing the domestic winners who should be able to expand production in the face of less international competition and hire more local workers. In a truly free trade system, this would have long-term disadvantages because American workers and companies would expand their effort on something that foreign companies and workers could do better. And, and here again, you see, that's the general argument that you always hear from economists and libertarians who keep their blinkers strictly on the economic principles. And those principles are valid, no question. But free markets do not function in unfree societies. And saying they do is a false appeal to virtue while practicing vice. So to conclude, quote, However, in the current trade regime, it merely levels the playing field for domestic producers while at the same time making life more uncomfortable for not only the American companies operating in China, but also in Europe and Canada. And it comes with all the unintended consequences any kind of government intervention carries, probably even higher prices for domestic consumer goods. 
However, if the people complaining right now had been truly interested in free trade and not just in collecting their own spoils, they would have long ago called on China to lower their average tariff rates and the European Union and Canada to stop their massive subsidies for agricultural products. Alas for them, free trade is only a one-way street leading to the United States, and they're unhappy that Trump just put up a massive stop sign, end quote. So as I've concluded myself on previous shows, when Trump speaks of trade imbalances, he's really speaking about trade barrier imbalances. The analyses I've just shared from the Epoch Times essentially makes the same determination. And the author Valentin Schmidt also fully acknowledges that there are perhaps an incalculable number of unintended consequences, but considers them the price to pay for setting things straight. You know, we usually speak of unintended consequences as those arising from good intentions gone bad. But in this given context, you can add the other side of the coin to the mix as well. Good intentions in one area actually gone good in another. But of course, it goes both ways. I'm trying to help Jason and Janet navigate some very complex feelings, but everything I do makes it worse. You know them better than anyone else. How do I just make them happy? How do you make Jason happy? You give him a lollipop shaped like a transformer. You'd think it'd be that simple, but every time I do something nice, it backfires. There are so many unintended consequences to well-intentioned actions. It feels like a game you can't win. That's it. There is another explanation. Unintended consequences. Oh, Tahani, you did it. But of course I did, darling. Did what? All along. I've only been looking at one duck, but there's millions of ducks in here. In 1534, Douglas Weingar of Hawkehurst, England, gave his grandmother roses for her birthday. He picked them himself, walked them over to her. She was happy. Boom, 145 points. Now, yeah, here we go. In 2009, Doug Ewing of Skaggsville, Maryland, also gave his grandmother a dozen roses, but he lost four points. Why? because he ordered roses using a cell phone that was made in a sweatshop. The flowers were grown with toxic pesticides, picked by exploited migrant workers, delivered from thousands of miles away, which created a massive carbon footprint, and his money went to a billionaire racist CEO who sends his female employees pictures of his genitals. Woo! That is a very odd thing to cheer. Don't you understand? The bad place isn't tampering with points. They don't have to. Because every day the world gets a little more complicated and being a good person gets a little harder. Gather the others. We have a lot to do. about the economy. The economy, that's a problem. No really good news at all. Oh, we'll find something. I know. I could announce the new governor of the Bank of England. Bernard, pop out and see if you can see Humphrey around somewhere. Tell him I'd like to see him in a couple of minutes. Yes, ma'am. Now, where were we? The economy. Unemployment coming down at all? No. We shall make the attack on unemployment our top priority. Pay? Rising too fast. We cannot afford to pay ourselves more than we earn. The world does not owe us a living. <laughs> Interest rates? Too high. 
You mean they might come down before the conference? Now, that would be terrific. I don't have that kind of luck. Well, if the whole picture's a total disaster, we can always wave the Union Jack. <laughs> the nation's great destiny. Unique role on the world stage. Devote every effort to building a peaceful and prosperous world for our children and our children's children. That's probably about how long it'll take. <laughs> and the Prime Minister in that episode of Yes, Prime Minister would never have known how right he was, since that's about how long it took for President Donald Trump to emerge on the scene. And to wrap up the show, I turn to this January 19th National Post commentary by Conrad Black that also indirectly speaks to what we just heard from the Epoch Times. From the January 12th National Post, under the heading, America's Resurgence is Reshaping the World. Quote, The economy of the United States is astoundingly strong. Full employment, an expanding workforce, negligible inflation, and about 3% economic growth. And it is a broad economic recovery, not based on service industries as in the United Kingdom. In the eight years of President Obama, the United States lost 219,000 manufacturing jobs. In the two years of Trump, the country has added 477,000 manufacturing jobs. This was not supposed to be possible. And this time, unlike the great Reagan boom, it cannot be dismissed by the left. It is clear that China is feeling the heat of the American tariffs. Their magnificent hypocrisy of gambling in a $360 billion trade surplus with the United States, while extorting technology from American companies and reducing American high-tech giants like Apple and Google to sniveling on China's behalf when their sales in that country are reduced, all of it is ending. Every U.S. president, starting with Dwight Eisenhower, has bewailed American dependence on foreign oil. Foreigners then supplied 10% of America's oil, a figure that rose to 60% under Obama, and no one has done anything about it until the past two years, when oil production has been sharply increased and reliance on oil imports has been sharply cut on its inexorable way to zero. And then there's Europe. The problem with the European Union is both practical and theoretical. As a practical matter, it is governed by a bureaucracy of Dutch and Belgian scribes and functionaries that is answerable neither to the ludicrous European Parliament in Strasbourg, the ultimate irrelevant talking shop, <laughs> nor to the principal member states, and is exacting its revenge for centuries of deference to France, Germany, and Britain. Through it all, the United States, appearing to be disorderly, its establishment and media at war with the occupant of the White House is demonstrating almost effortlessly how illusory is the idea that any other country or group countries can challenge its preeminence among the world's nations, end quote. And I think that pretty well sums it up perfectly. So what causes, quote, unquote, a recession? Well, I think it's the observer effect. It's the definition effect. It's political deficits in any or all of these things. This is an unanswerable question when put in that form, because as we've already philosophically illustrated, the cause, quote-unquote, of anything depends upon a current existent, and what a particular observer thinks that cause is. That's really all it boils down to. There are no causes for future events. The future cannot be predicted, but you can gamble on the probabilities. And our own probability for today 
is that you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I've got to say something good in my speech today. If I can't announce the appointment of Mr. Clean as Governor of the Bank of England... Why don't you announce a cut in interest rates? Oh, don't be silly, Humphrey. I... What? Why don't you announce a cut in interest rates? Well, the bank could never allow a political cut, particularly with Jameson as Governor. Uh, but it would with Desmond Claysbrook as Governor. Now, if you appoint him Governor of the Bank of England, he'll cut Bartlett's bank's interest rates in the morning. You can announce both in your speech. How do you know? Uh, because you just told me. He's here. <laughs> Desmond Glazebrook as governor? Well, he's such a fool. <laughs> yeah, he talks in clichés. <laughs> talking clichés till the cows come home. Would the cut in interest rates mean that prices will go up? Well, I don't mind that as long as I get a standing inflation. Inflation. <laughs>